and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. The Central Asian states have started marking 31 years of independence, and many questions have been raised lately about cultural identity after there was more than a century, and in some cases closer to two centuries, of Russian colonization in the 19th and 20th centuries. During the time the region was part of the Soviet Union, people in Central Asia were forced to use Russian language and told to forget their ethnicity, their history, and traditions, and embrace being a Soviet citizen, which essentially meant learning to respect Russian history and culture. What is the legacy of Russian colonization on independent Central Asian states today? To discuss all this, I am joined by Erika Marat, born in Kyrgyzstan, but currently an associate professor at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., Botakaz Kasimbekova, born in Kazakhstan, but currently an associate professor at the Department of History at the University of Basel in Switzerland. And I want to mention, Erika and Botakaz are authors of an article called Time to Question Russia's Imperial Innocence that is available on Ponar's Eurasian website. That's ponarseurasia.org. And also joining us is Azamat Junispai, originally from Kazakhstan, but currently a professor of sociology at Pitzer College in Claremont, California whose work focuses on social stratification, welfare state attitudes, and public opinion about political and economic inequality in post-Soviet Central Asia. Thank you all for joining me. Azamat, I want to start with you. You recently wrote a thread on Twitter in which you reflected on your identity and family's history, and you started by saying it was, quote, an attempt to begin to make sense of my relationship to the Kazakh language and culture, unquote. Could you explain to our audience what you meant by that? Yes, of course. Um, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm honored to be participating in this uh, alongside with Erika and Botakos. Uh, I really, what I wrote was in large part inspired by the the piece on Ponar's Eurasia about sort of got me thinking about some of my own stuff. Um, but yeah, I was born and raised in Almaty. I was born in 1976. At the time in Almaty, ethnic Kazakhs were a distinct minority even though it was the capital of the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic. And growing up in that time, in that place, I really, you know, was rasified. I didn't really question this, right? So, in, in fact, because there were so few Kazakhs in Omari, Kazakhs that were there, I mean, looking back, I think there was a great deal of privilege involved in sort of living in the city at the time. And in Kazakhstan, of course, to this day, the majority of ethnic Kazakhs reside in rural areas, but definitely back then, Kazakhs were disproportionately in certain parts of the country, you know, in rural areas. And Almaty being the largest and sort of the most cosmopolitan city in Kazakhstan had the smallest, not the smallest, but had a very small share of the Kazakh population. And I w- spoke Russian at home. My um, family, in fact, on my mom's side, they all speak Russian home, they speak Russian to this day. They could not really maintain a conversation in Kazakh. And that is something that it's just that's how things were. I had, you know, some Kazakh friends who are also born and raised in Almaty and they had similar circumstances. So I wasn't unusual. My family wasn't unusual in that respect. And so, you know, I've been in the U.S. for most of my adult life. And, you know, whenever someone would ask, oh, so you're Russian? I would say, no, 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 I'm not Russian, but uh, but you're speaking Russian. And I would explain, oh, yeah, I grew up, you know, went to a Russian school. And usually that was kind of it. But what I started been thinking about more and more recently is why is it that 
not just I didn't speak Kazakh, but I kind of felt like, yeah, I don't speak Kazakh, so what? Right. And I speak Russian and I, I, I it makes me uncomfortable to this day. I mean, I don't want to say I was proud of being removed from Kazakh culture, but I just there was a kind of a smugness and and I, I don't know. I, I may, maybe I, I'd like to see the floor now to to our other two guests. I'll try to collect my thoughts, but it's, it's, it's just it's a deeply personal, deeply uncomfortable topic in some ways. Right. Because you feel like you learned contempt, I guess for your own culture, for your own language, but that's not how I used to think of it most, most of my life. I was just like, yeah, I'm from Almaty and, you know, ha 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 and all this other stuff. But um, yeah, let me just stop for now. And I'd like to hear what our other guests have to yeah. say. Excellent. No problem at all, because, you know, this this makes a good point. If you listen to the, you know, part of the Soviet indoctrination, uh, certainly in the early days after the Soviet Union was created, was to tell the people of Central Asia that they were from, essentially they were from backward cultures. And, and that, you know, to, they had to, the Russians were there to help them and bring them into the 20th century and, you know, get them, cut their ties with this uh, primitive cultures that they, they had uh, been, that they had, had evolved in that region. I mean, what, what does that do to, to people, you know, from the region? Uh, I mean, there was a rich culture, obviously, out there. I mean, what does it do to people in the region when you're told by your colonizers that, um, you know, that you're better off with them uh, than you would have been if you had, if you, they had left them alone. Uh, Botakos, you want to, you want to say something? So I would like to share a personal experience and uh, which is connected to the feeling of shame. As a child, I remember when um, ethnographers and journalists came to make reportage about uh, the grandfather of my grandmother, who was, you know, a famous Kazakh poet and composer. And I remember when, especially when one team of documentaries, people came to make a documentary about my grandmother, I was extremely ashamed uh, that um, I was told that uh, this uh, reportage will be shown on Kazakh TV. So I hid myself in my room and I didn't go out um, and actually my sister too. We come also from a very Russian-speaking family. So we sent our little brother to be filmed because I remember very clearly my fear that my classmates will see uh, the video and me and my family and actually that everything is in Kazakh. So the journalists were asking questions in Kazakh and my grandmother spoke Kazakh and she sang songs. So I was so ashamed because retrospectively, I understood that if they see that documentary, they will see that I'm actually that Kazakh. You know, I'm that traditional Kazakh uh, that is being described as backward you know, as something that is of lower level than Russians. I, w I went to a Russian school. So as a child, I didn't understand anything about colonialism, racism. I didn't know that. But my experiences intuitively, I knew that my place in society is not preferential. So it doesn't give me a good identity. So retrospectively, I then later understood uh, what it was about. But I also would like to say uh, where kind of my very strong cultural revival came is actually from going to Tajikistan and learning Tajik language. Actually, my Tajik language is quite good. I can fluently hold conversations. And then I realized that 
I speak Tajik quite fluently, but uh, my Kazakh is not very good. And then through Tajik language, I actually came back to Kazakh. But the biggest, I think, political decision for me uh, really to start speaking Kazakh came with Kantar when I've been organizing protest um, actions um, in Europe with Kazakh diaspora. And what happened was that when we conversed with, you know, Kazakh diaspora in in the United States, in, in the UK, in other countries, in South Korea, what happened was that we noticed that some people were comfortable in Kazakh and some people were comfortable in Russian. And there was this linguistic divide. And plus, when we received also messages from Kazakhstan, a lot of them were in Kazakh language. And I realized that that linguistic divide was a political divide. It was a social divide. It was a cultural divide. But we were all united by political aims. And then I understood that I really want to understand very well society in Kazakhstan. I want to understand, I want to converse with everyone in Kazakhstan. And I don't want that linguistic divide to stand between me and different groups of people. And so I started, you know, uh, studying Kazakh. Um, so this summer, especially, uh, I was taking intense courses and I can understand a lot. So I do have Kazakh in me because my grandmother spoke Kazakh to me and my grandmother started speaking Kazakh to me after Solzhenitsyn said that, you know, Northern Kazakhstan should belong to Russia. And this moment, I actually, two years ago, I uh, wrote a chapter about my family. It's part of my current book. And I described in that chapter about that decision of my grandmother and how broken she was by Solzhenitsyn. And so I was reflecting about it actually before Kantar, but with Kantar, with this January protests, I made a political decision. But then, you know, it was a very busy time. And with war in Ukraine, of course, it spiraled that reflection again. One thing to notice is that uh, when we organized protests, we did that to together with people from Belarus. And they have been sharing their experiences of Russification. And they've been very vocal about Russian colonialism and how they've been described as backwards. So for me, it was a big surprise because I thought that it's only for Central Asians who were treated as people of lower culture. But I was very surprised to hear very similar painful stories from uh, people from Belarus and also many, especially Kazakhs who are older than me, uh, when we, you know, came together at demonstrations, uh, they were also speaking about, you know, uh, racism, racism that they experienced during Soviet times. And I realized that their experience was even more painful than my experience. And it was a very eye-opening experience. So it, it was a longer process. But what I want to highlight is that it's not simply about identity, it's about politics and political changes and political decisions of how do we think how to reflect about our role in society, about, um, you know, culture, about how it is divisive or how it is uniting. And so I keep reflecting on that. But it started as a child, I started with a feeling of strong shame about being Kazakh. And now I've, I think I've gone through the process of emancipation. And now I appreciate uh, the Kazakh language. And I'm kind of taking it also as a political reflection on, you know, the Soviet history, colonialism, and sovereignty and emancipation. Thank you. 
Thank you, both of us. Um, and Erica, could you give us the perspective from uh, from Kyrgyzstan? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, my experience was uh, exactly uh, like Azamat and Botas. We were raised ashamed of Kyrgyz culture. Kyrgyz culture is considered to be, uh, even by many Kyrgyz uh, still today in Kyrgyzstan, especially in Bishkek, as backwards, as a rural culture, something to be ashamed of. Yes, the feeling of shame is persistent. It's it's still there uh, among Russified relatives of mine. And uh, I also want to note that how pervasive the shame is in daily lives of Central Asians. And I think Central Asians are especially, so Central Asians and maybe uh, Belarusians are similar in that way, how um, our cultures were especially erased by, by the Soviets, by um, Russian colonialism. Um, I didn't know, I don't notice same level of erasure, for instance, among my friends from the Baltic states or from South Caucasus. Uh, there's something particular about Central Asia that was considered you know, to be okay to completely transform the population and cultures cultures in in the region so the the shame the feeling of shame is so pervasive it is this really ev- everyday practices of uh, more russified or ethnic russians correcting native of Kyrgyzstan, so Kyrgyz or non-Russians and how they pronounce certain words on their looks, on um, their grammar in Russia, as if this is the standard that needs to be followed by everyone, that the Russian the Russian language, the proper grammar, proper way of talking Russian, Russian preferably without an accent, that is the, the standard, that, that is the high culture in Central Asia. And it uh, it is so normalized, this, the, these acts of microaggression, I would say, um, and I'm not even talking about bigger issues of um, you know, statements made by various Russian nationalists or Russian embassies in Central Asia from time to time. They make, uh, they allow themselves to be uh, extremely racist <laughs> and very nationalistic in, in Central Asia while being in Central Asia. But uh, those the, these acts of microaggressions, they continue to exist in Central Asia. And it's really confusing, I think, for many people. It's good that now the discussions are expanding. And uh, the process that we're going through, so the threat that Azamat shared, um, what what Akos is writing about, this is all search for ourselves, you know, our true selves without the colonial past. And it is, uh, as Azamat said, enormously uncomfortable and painful process of recognizing the um, colonial erasure within yourself, in your family, in your community, how we ourselves were perpetrators of that erasure as well by being ashamed of who we are and our own ethnic groups and kind of parroting uh, the stereotypes about ethnic Kyrgyz or ethnic Kazakhs uh, being backwards, being um, rural. Uh, not good enough, basically, for uh, civilized conversations, so civilized interactions. And this is a very uh, uncomfortable process, but it's also very liberating. And I think it is a real, this is the real fight for independence. That is something that we needed to go through a while ago. We're finally going through this. There is a critical mass of people who are having similar conversations across Central Asia. And it's it's a it's a wonderful thing, I think, and it it will bring us to greater unity, to better awareness of who we are, what we want. It will eventually, hopefully, translate into more independent foreign policy, 
and a better sense of who we are without the uh, colonial <laughs> subjugation. Okay, great. Thank you. You know, I'm going to use this opportunity to uh, to do our midsection break here because we're going to get into what's happening now and, and looking forward into the future in the second half of the show. So uh, I want to remind everybody that the this is the Medjilis podcast, a uh, weekly show, current affairs show on Central Asia. Uh, today's topic is colonization and decolonization uh, in Central Asia. And uh, I am joined by guest Botakos Kasimbekova, who is born in Kazakhstan and currently is an assistant professor at the Department of History at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Azamat Junispai, also originally from Kazakhstan, but currently a professor of sociology at Pitzer, Uni- Pitzer College in Claremont, California, whose work focuses on social stratification, welfare state attitudes, and public opinion of, about pol- political and economic inequality in the post-Soviet Central Asia. Erica Marat, born in Kyrgyzstan, but currently an associate professor at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., and I'm Bruce Panair, host of the Medjilis podcast. Now, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the, a little bit about the decolonization process, right? And this Russian culture, of course, we, we all understand that it's got deeply embedded in Central Asia. I mean, it's hard to undo 100 plus years of their presence in there. Russian television, for example, is, is widely available, certainly in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. It has a great influence on people, on the way people form their opinions about what's happening in the world, as a matter, as a matter of fact. So before we move on to decolonization, uh, let's finish with what, what vestiges of colonization are still present in Central Asia and, and how, that, uh, how that is still affecting the, the people's identity today in Central Asia. Erica, since uh, you were kind of getting at this, can you start us out here? Oh, yeah, sure. So let's start with borders. The borders are completely uh, invented less than 100 years ago, right, by, by the Bolsheviks, by Lenin and Stalin. And Botakos can also speak more about that. So the very borders, the very divisions around which we are trying currently to build our nations and sense of national identity, they are all imagination of Moscow based on the interests of Moscow. So the really deep conversations uh, about what Central Asia is and who we are as Central Asians uh, will also have to eventually talk about the borders. But also the the sense that Russian language is more important than your own language, the idea that it's to be an educated person, you have to know Pushkin, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, there is no way around it, as opposed to, for instance, learning about other cultures in the world, uh, other Asian cultures in the world, for instance, or Global South cultures. That is a persistent legacy, unfortunately, today as well. And the the attitude that still unfortunately shared by quite large parts of uh, the population in Central Asia, not least because of Russian television, that Russia is entitled to controlling politically uh, countries that were formerly occupied by the Soviet regime. That attitude needs to be really re-examined on a really meta public level so that we free ourselves from this idea that we somehow owe to Russia something and uh, Russia is a special neighbor that is taking care of us. So something in this in this vein. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, you know, and this is in your article, Botakaz, if you can comment on this too, the, the article that you and Erica wrote, you know, you, you mentioned that Russia doesn't look at this as colonization at all. It's very strange. Well, they, they, they portray themselves, the government portrays themselves as being anti-colonial. But in fact, um, they did colonize Central Asia, although that's not the way they look at it at all. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, the uh, historical long-term imperial method Russia has been uh, developing is of imperial innocence, that uh, Russia conquers not because it wants to conquer, but one, because it wants uh, to defend itself from outside enemies. So that idea that we save ourselves or we save others from other evil powers is a very strong, has a has a history in uh, Russian imperialism, and this uh, Bolsheviks built on that myth. So uh, for Central Asia, the idea was that we're saving you from British colonialism, and you, ha you have to be grateful for us saving you from, you know, capitalist oppression. So this was kind of the discourse. Uh, this comes in many documents. So this is kind of uh, the comparison uh, was always if, if you're not grateful to us, otherwise you would live like people in Africa and India. And the imagery that came, of course, was not anti-colonial struggles or, you know, uh, democratic movements, but rather poverty, uh, very racialized and racist images of uh, people in Africa and India. And so I think a lot of people also internalized that discourse and did not question what was going on. But what was going on and coming to your question, what are the legacies? And I think one of the important legacies, in addition to, you know, environmental devastation, you know, uh, lack of um, education, because uh, the Soviet education I call training and not education, because education is always uh, comes together with critical thinking and openness uh, and freedom of speech, which did not exist in the Soviet Union. We have kind of these legacies, but one of the most important legacies is depolitization of the concept of nation. Since uh, political leaders and cultural authorities and moral authorities were exterminated uh, during the Soviet times, we have this politic uh, political rupture of, you know, mobilizing around political goals. So what Stalin did is he depoliticized the concept of nation, uh, really reducing it to kind of ethnic folkloristic understanding. And uh, one of the kind of challenges for us is to repoliticize the understanding of nation, that we can uh, unite, uh, not you know, based on, you know, um, blood or uh, simple language, but rather around a political idea. And this is kind of one of the ways how we can overcome colonial legacies is by leading political discussions about what is a nation and who are citizens, who are we and what do we want. want. So kind of this civic understanding of nation, which in our case, in this kind of post-colonial case, comes together with the discussion of cultural erasure. Cultural erasure is nothing else but violence uh, on the most personal basis, but it is essentially political violence to disempower people to talk for themselves, you know, to have their own dignity, to demand uh, certain rights. Uh, because once you are reduced to a certain caricature, caricature image of, you know, a backward person who cannot think and who needs to be raised, infantilized to a, you know, member of a cultural group, you cannot demand and fight for your future. So once we repoliticize the understanding of nation and culture, uh, we can overcome very, very difficult uh, colonial legacies and borders, uh, this artificial divide and rule map of Central Asia 
is a big challenge, but I think we will be able to overcome it if we also lead that conversation about cultural erasure, you know, identities, that we don't simply close our eyes on it, but we discuss it thoroughly to find common grounds. Thank you very much. Uh, Azamat, you know, in your in your, your thread uh, on Twitter, um, you know, you mentioned that you were you were kind of uh, the moment that the, the spark that made you want to write this thread was the events, events in Ukraine. So I'm, I'm real curious about it. It seems I've seen I've heard this from other people, too, that are from Central Asia that really after the war started, after Russia started the war on Ukraine, that it really caused it was moment, you know, for for introspection a little bit. And a lot of people started to reconsider uh, you know, their own national identity. We're starting to see the process of people moving, not pulling, kind of pulling themselves away from Russia, right? I mean, there's examples in other parts of the world, too, from European powers in Africa and Asia uh, that, you know, they've, they, these countries became independent in the 50s and 60s, but they still have these, these lingering aspects of the colonial eras in their countries. Uh, what do you see in Kazakhstan that, would, that you think is, is an example of Kazakhstan starting to free itself, so to speak, from, you know, what, what really is 200 years of Russian colonization. Sure. Thank you so much for the question. I um, think there are several things going on. I mean, first of all, in fairness, right, in Kazakhstan, a large part of the Kazakh population did not grow up being predominantly Russian speakers, right? A lot of people retain their language, retain their culture. I guess that's a sociologist to me, but I'm thinking that I mean, probably the three of us, the three Central Asians right now on this podcast, we all come from rather privileged backgrounds, right? So being so far removed from your own culture was one of the markers, right, of privilege was. And I think just demographically in Kazakhstan, and I presume in Kyrgyzstan as well, right, the situation is such that, yeah, the just the share of Kazakhs, share of Kazakh-speaking people in Kazakhstan is increasing rapidly. A lot, a lot of them did not lose their language. But... I suppose my reflection was, you know, it, it's informed by my own experiences in that, you know, I come from a place of relative privilege in terms of my family history, right? And it was uh, what this, the, the, the war, the thing, yeah, the things that happened, it got me thinking that, yeah, I mean, not only was the language erased in the case of my family and culture also, but also in my own case, that feeling of, that Erica so eloquently talked about, that feeling of shame, right? That being ashamed and, and, and Boris sort of, I think, very heartfelt story, right? From the beginning, the be, being embarrassed about being who you are. And if you think about it, essentially, if you take in any society, if you take the people who are, I mean, I'm reluctant to use the term elite, but people who are relatively more privileged and essentially you instill that feeling of shame in your own culture, right? That is something that will have you know, rippling effects, right? It will have, have long-lasting effects. And so what I think is happening now is that in the wake of this unapologetically imperialist aggression, right, in terms of uh, what Russia is doing in uh, Ukraine and all kinds of just racist, insane statements that are coming out from Russian officials towards Central Asia, toward Kazakhstan specifically, right? It's causing even those of us who were comfortably russified right and okay about being cut off for the longest time we are being cut off from our own cultures it's it's causing us to re-examine these things and certainly i am speaking for myself it's causing me to re-examine that right i felt some discomfort for years so i you know i i was thinking when my kids were born right i wanted to make sure that i give them my language 
But then I thought, well, I only can give them Russian, right? And, 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 and I felt certain shame about that for a long time, but that was just the reality of it. But the part I think that has since the war that has been really preoccupying sort of me and that I've been very uncomfortable with is this recognition of not only was the culture and the language erased, but I was ashamed that and and of of who I am, I guess, of what my family is, right? That they're Kazakh. And that's really perverse, right? If you talk about colonization, that's a really horrific thing, right? Where you take people in society who, you know, you think are the ones who sort of relatively are more successful and they are the ones who are most ashamed around culture. Because if you think about press coverage, of course, Russia has disproportionate influence, you know, in, in, you know, when it comes to television and whatnot, but a lot of people in Kazakhstan these days consume uh, their uh, content in Kazakh, right? But it's the Russian speaking Kazakhs, I think, who are really beginning to question a lot of things in a way that just has not been the case. And I'm thinking about my own friends and whatnot. But yeah, sorry, I'll stop for now. Well, thank you, Azamat. Uh, both the calls? Yes, I uh, really like how Azamat reflected on, you know, being in privileged position and, and, and at the same time being ashamed. And that's one of the, I think, legacies of uh, Soviet colonialism is that actually after the fall of the Soviet Union, with which stories did we come out of that story? You know, where in Russia, people can proudly say, oh, we developed everyone. You know, we built that huge empire. With which story did we come out of that story? With a story of shame. You know, we don't, we are disoriented. And to reflect on privilege, my grandmother was the only survivor of Arshashalik, of the hunger uh, in her family. She later, decades later, she found um, a relative, but as a child, uh, she lost her family. And so she grew up in an orphanage and statistically 60% of children died in orphanages. These orphanages were Russian. So my grandmother grew up in a Russian orphanage. She didn't have a chance to grow up in her family environment, you know, to be raised in her culture. So what I think is important is not simply to think about the privilege, but rather kind of the story behind Russification. In my case, it's not really a story of privilege. It's a story of death, of violence, of genocide, of um, cultural erasure, of trauma, extreme trauma. So my grandmother grew up in an orphanage. And, you know, in my book, I, I write about her life and I say that she was stigmatized or she felt stigma all her life because she didn't have a family. You know, getting married, she wouldn't she didn't have anyone around. So uh, she invested all her life to make sure that we are not stigmatized. So I think it's a bit more complicated. And of course, she she couldn't she learned Kazakh language and she spoke Kazakh language to me from 1991. But she didn't have any other choice. In my town, there was only one Kazakh school. So even if you wanted to send your child uh, and learn Kazakh, there was still there was simply no possibility to do so. So and if you go to a Russian school, you know, at some point you switch to Russian. So I think that this cultural erasure was very systematic. It was very 
structural. And of course, uh, we are here urbanites, and it would be uh, very important also to listen to and amplify voices of those who uh, grow up in uh, rural areas. But that is, I think, like when I wrote this one tweet about cultural erasure, you know, I it was uh, something that only after I wrote it, I kind of, uh, I cried, actually. I cried for a long time because, and I think that whole pain about the violence that one came through really went out, uh, really, you know, I let it free. And it's, and that's the start of healing. And that's the start of, you know, as Erica said, um, uh, liberation. And for me, uh, decolonization is about emancipation. It's something, it's to claim our voice, is to claim our dignity back. So the story that we came out of the collapse of the Soviet Union is not a nice story, but we can write a new story. And that depends on us and how far we will listen to each other, not only to urbanize, but how much dialogue we will have. Uh, and that experience I had during the Kantar, it was a magic experience because, you know, uh, I had problems expressing myself in Kazakh, but a lot of people from rural areas in Kazakhstan wrote messages, dozens of messages saying that, you know, you you your Kazakh is not very good, but you're a true Kazakh in your spirit, you know, and all these messages, how people were really, we have this extreme violent divide between us, but we overcame that in our common political goal. And that experience, it was the best, one of the best experiences of my life. So, um, yes, <laughs> thank you. No, that's fantastic. That's fa and really not only not only great comments, but you helped me transition right into my next question, which is for Erica. You know, and also Azamat mentioned that there was this, this Russian chauvinism, right? This very public Russian chauvinism is very hard for people from the for former Soviet Union to look at. Certainly, the non-Russian population of of the Soviet Union um, and, and the work that you three are doing in the comments that you, the public comments that you make, are also helping to spark this new debate. Uh, and there seems to be now some signs that that the situation is changing a little bit. And I'm thinking, for instance, that, uh, you know, Kazakh President um, Takayev was in Azerbaijan just a couple of weeks ago, and he spoke with Ilham Aliyev. And they used their own languages. They didn't use Russian to, to converse with each other, at least for part of their conversations, which is something new, because we know when the Central Asian leaders get together, for instance, they they do tend to speak in Russian, even though, with the exception of possibly the Tajik president, the languages they speak are mutually intelligible. And I've been with Turkmen, Kyrgyz, Kazakhs, and Uzbeks, where they were all speaking their own language, and everyone understood what was going on, so I know it's possible. Uh, and then last week, we had a Kyrgyz member of parliament that said that he didn't want the reports to be given in Russian, um, because these reports were going to be listened to by people in the, in the village, he said, and they speak Kyrgyz. How significant is this change? We definitely see some change. And Tokayev was Aliyev. They obviously send a political message uh, by talking in their native uh, languages. But I think there's still a really, really long way to go. I recently was at a Central Asian event organized by one of the Central Asian governments. And it was really appalling to see how much of effort is made to uh, celebrate Russian culture ahead of oh, native culture. And that was a very sad dynamics, to be honest, because that Central Asian country has a lot to offer 
on its own uh, without having to uh, resort to Soviet standards of of prioritizing cultures. So Russian, European ahead of own culture. So, but there's really a really long way to go on the on the political level. A lot has to be done still. And the Central Asian leaders, they are still, I'm afraid to say, still in this Russified zone of, they're still Russified and still too Soviet in their way of thinking, governing, seeing the world, understanding the world. So there will be time, we need more time to see before different types of leaders hopefully rise in Central Asia who will be able to be more decolonial in their thinking. I want to go back to the note that Azamad and Bota made about a rural population. And I want to say that, of course, they preserved a language, although it was also very standardized by the Soviets, uh, the, the, the kind of languages we speak in Central Asia and the, the alphabets we use. The script, but even though they preserve, so even though rural populations preserved the language, they still their cultures were still erased. Equally so, um, as was um, as among uh, more privileged, uh, quote unquote, privileged Russified populations in uh, urban areas. We essentially we don't have a memory of going back uh, before 1917 um, or the establishment of the Soviet Union in 1920s. Uh, familial tribal community. Histories, traditions, uh, lineages were erased. We don't know. We can only imagine or try to you work around somehow through oral histories. So in that sense, the cultural erasure was equally distributed among both rural and urban populations. But we we still continue to have uh, russified, Sovietized elites in power who... Uh, who hold those deeply internalized ideas of what is considered to be a civilized, educated person, a group of people. And those stereotypes continue to be perpetrated on the political level still. And I see that in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan um, to this day. Okay, thank you. Um, You know what, I'm going to let you guys all have uh, one last comment. Anything you think we missed? Uh, any direction you think that, that people should know about. Um, if you can keep it to just a couple minutes, I'd appreciate that. And I'll start with Azamat, and I'll just work my way down the list. Azamat, what, what haven't we mentioned that we should have mentioned here? Has, what haven't we had time to talk about yet? I think we've had a good conversation. I just had one little vignette that's somewhat related to what we were discussing earlier. After Kazakhstan became independent, a lot of uh, central streets in the cities, and specifically in Almaty, right, were renamed. And so, for example, I grew up on the corner of Oktyabrske and Zerzhinske, right? And then the na- the new names were, you know, Kazakh names, of, uh, you know, associated with different historical figures. But I just also remember for years and years and years, I persisted in, you know, using the old names stupidly without thinking about it or maybe thinking that, you know, it. and it wasn't just me. I mean, I've had this conversation with a cousin who lives in Almaty and, you know, and he still does it. And I said, look, but if you think about it, Dzerzhinsky, right, was sort of the, the, the founding leader of the KGB, right? And uh, Oktyabrsky is, is named after the revolution. A lot of our family perished, you know, in the, 1930, in the 1930s repression. Why are we doing this? And I think these were because these, you know, using the old street names, right, were the markers, oh, I've been in Almaty for a long time, right? I, these are the names I'm used to. 
And again, how how horrible is this, right? That you have this contempt for the new names, right? And you are clinging somehow to the old names of the streets, but you think about it, Zierzynski, Aktyavrsky, like it's, it's terrifying, right? And and it just it to it just makes me physically uncomfortable thinking about it now. I mean, I I tr- I I am trying to break these habits, and I wanted to say I really admire what what I was saying. How she just is learning Kazakh, right, and is doing these things. For me, this is a, a project for the near future. But um, I think definitely that is the way to go, and I'm just really proud of the work that uh, both Erica are doing. Yeah, just just as a, a side note too. These renamed streets, you know, a lot of them have been, a lot of the stuff has been renamed like after Nazarbayev, right? And so which, you know, which is better, the old name of the street that people remember or, you know, this appropriation by the, uh, by El Busty. So anyway, just a thought that I had both. Yeah, uh, yeah they have the whole different conversation. But yeah, I mean, that, that's, yeah, that's fair point. Yeah, just, you know, like I'm used to Ulitzer Formanova in Almaty, which hasn't existed in years. Um, but, uh, you know, I just remember that name because it was a main street. And when I get confused when I go out there and people, I think it was Nazarbayev Street now, right? Wasn't that renamed? And um, I mean, I, I cannot bring myself to say Nazarbayev or, you know, Uko Astana Nur Sultan to this day, obviously. But uh, I'm talking about, you know, like Kaban Baybater or Bogdan Baybater, like those, the, the, the streets that were named after basically soviet butchers right who right. were then renamed after kazakh historical figures and then i persisted in using these old names because it was somehow what i was used to and maybe thinking a bit more deeply a marker of sort of being from there or whatnot and i'm just it just makes me ashamed and uncomfortable to even talk about that thanks for sharing that um bota <laughs> yes i mean if yeah continuing on that topic of street names i think it is a highly political thing how you name your streets because around those heroes we can hold very important uniting national conversations about who we are and where we want to go and the kind of the streets you know what are the directions of us as individuals as groups as humans as a nation i think it's a very important conversation and Thinking as a, as a historian of the Soviet dictatorship, I would say my dream is that we overcome the idea of titular nation and we overcome the idea of minorities. I hope that we will not repeat the Soviet story of, you know, folklorization and depolitization of the nation. I hope that, you know, one of the legacies of, uh, you know, Soviet dictatorship and colonialism is a uh, d- uh, diversity of different people with many different uh, biographies and i hope that we will be able to you know to create the idea of a political nation something that ukrainians are very successful doing now i mean if we look at uh, ukrainian parliament we'll find you know people from afghanistan you know ethnic koreans ethnic tartar even ethnic kyrgyz you know all feeling ukrainian and speaking ukrainian and this is i think this example of ukraine is very inspiring and i hope that although we talk about you know kazakh language i hope that we will be open and we will create an attractive idea of a kazakh nation so that people who come, you know, from German um, uh, background, that they also uh, feel Kazakh, you know, that it is open, that it the promise 
of the new nation will be bigger than simply, you know, a language. It will be a political future with dignity, with voice, uh, with representation, with an opportunity to participate and create, participate in the creation of one's present and one's future. Excellent point. Thank you. Erica, last word to you. Yes, thank you. So it is very hard to follow those two uh, very thoughtful uh, statements. Um, I hope that as Central Asians, we will also rethink who we are on this large plot of land. Think about what kind of different political, cultural alignments we have within the region. Maybe in a very distant future, Central Asia will not have the borders it has today. That's very distant. That's basically, this is still fantasy land for now. But in a shorter term, in a more realistic, practical, you know, from a realistic, practical standpoint, I think we are already doing all the hard work we we needed to do uh, in Central Asia. We are awakening. The conversations are widespread. They're diverse and intense. There is a collective energy behind it. And it is unstoppable at this point. I think Russians and Russia have to do some have to do some work as well on uh, their own sense of uh, imperial identity, and that is something uh, that hopefully will be inspired after we our conversations make make sense to Russians and now after we are able to become completely independent, that it will make more Russians rethink about their past the future about their own identity. Excellent. That's a great great way to end this. It's a tough topic and a real deep topic, um, but but it's really important. And I think, you know, for people to hear this and understand what the situation is, how, the, how you guys feel about um, this legacy today as your countries are moving forward. And yet at the same time, your, your homelands at one time are moving forward. And yet there's still some chains that, that tie you to the, the old colonial Russia master out there. Um, so thank you very much to Azamat, Erika, and Botakaz for being on the program today. Uh, a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty's website at rfirl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back again next week. Bye-bye.